there's a story I wanted to read to you. This is written by an individual, and he's talking about a personal experience he had. He says, while I try to practice in my life, uh, my, while I tried to practice in my life what I am taught by my faith, I have never tried to convert anyone. I respect the practice of all faiths. Gag me. One time I remember attending a Pentecostal service. The Pentecostals are what we call charismatic in religion. They believe that the Holy Spirit speaks through them. While it might sound like a little like gibberish, it's known as speaking in tongues. At this service, the preacher was raising the Holy Spirit. He said, quote, God said we are going to rise to the top of this mountain. We are going to be God's children, going to take God's children up in their spiritual life. We are going to yada, 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 yada. I couldn't understand a word that the man was saying. What is that, I wondered. I turned around and asked the person standing behind me, what's he saying? They said he's speaking in tongues. It didn't matter if I understood it. God understood it. It is the perfect communication with the Lord that definitely got my attention. While I was with the professional football team, the Steelers, this is Terry Bradshaw. While I was with the Steelers, I would occasionally join several other players in a Bible study. At one of those meetings, they asked me if I would like to receive the Holy Spirit, meaning would I like to learn how to speak in tongues? Well, of course I would. I'd taken French in high school and could speak a few sentences, but this was something entirely different. The only way to get the Holy Spirit, I was told, was from people who have already received it. God gave it to them so that they can pass it along to others. It's done physically through what is called the laying on of hands. We went into my dormitory room at training camp. I sat down on my bed. A group of my teammates surrounded me and started praying loudly and fervently. They laid their hands on my body. And where they were touching me, I could feel heat. Something was definitely happening. The whole room started to get very warm. They started shouting louder and louder, Lord, we are saved, we are saved. I don't know if the room really got hotter because I was receiving the Holy Spirit or simply because I was so nervous, but I definitely could feel the heat rising in me. People were praying and yelling. They were yabba-dabba-doing all over the room, and it was an old-fashioned tent revival meeting right there in my, in my uh, room. I kept waiting for the message to come through to me. I was ready to yabba-dabba-dabba, but so nothing happened. Finally, everybody calmed down, and they began to teach me how to speak in tongues. Wait a second, I thought. If this is supposed to be a natural outpouring of emotion, why is it being explained to me? If God speaks to me and the Holy Spirit is in me, then the Holy Spirit should be doing the talking. So why did I have to be taught the words? That was a question I never could get an answer to. The only conclusion I can reach is that I never received the Holy Spirit because I've never spoken in tongues. Although some people who have seen me on television might argue that I have said a lot of things that don't make any sense. Um, <laughs> the, the story I read there isn't an unusual story. It's not one that's unique. I remember our family being exposed to something very, very similar to that when we were baby Christians and somebody trying to teach us how to speak in tongues and get filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that the way it works. Is that how it is biblically? There's a lot of confusion about it, and so I think it's worth our while doing a little bit more exploratory study in the Bible and deal with this topic a little bit more in depth, and uh, that way you are able to better equipped, you're better equipped to answer some of the people who may ask you those questions. What we want to answer and get over in this week and next week is um, <clears throat> this idea, does the speaking in tongues still happen today? Uh, how do you answer those who say, well, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, 14, forbid not to speak in tongues. And it does say that. And so what we need to do is be able to answer those questions like, what is tongues? Is it a heavenly language? It does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, though I speak in the tongues of angels, and some would say, okay, that indicates that speaking in tongues is speaking a heavenly language. How do you answer that? How do you answer when Paul talks about, and to these people about, you know, that there is a preference for speaking in tongues compared to some other things? And it all equates 
relates back to this whole idea of being filled with the Spirit. Do you have to speak in tongues in order to be filled with the Spirit? Or uh, when you are filled with the Spirit, will you speak in tongues? And it goes back to that same thought that I've been trying to say over the last few weeks is it would be easier for us to have an emotional experience and that, that by far would set many of us up and get us more dynamic and dramatic and feel-good experience, but is that really biblical? And so what does the Bible teach us about this whole topic? So what I want to do is go back to where we were last, uh, last week and fill in for any of you who weren't here and do real fast these, ki these questions about the spiritual gifts. Tongues is one of the spiritual gifts. When we talk about <clears throat> the gifts of the Spirit, what do we mean? Are they still functional? What does the Bible teach about that? In fact, if these gifts are, very, are still functioning today, if one of them or all of them are still functioning, the bottom line is we need to have them. If they are a ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life to benefit us, to help us in our walk with the Lord, then we better be aware of what these gifts are and we better utilize them if they are a gift that comes from God to help us in our walk and in our outreach. So what we want to do is just highlight a few thoughts here. These spiritual gifts, as we call them, they are not the same thing as the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm mentioned this last week, that Jesus said, I'm going to give you the gift of the Spirit. That doesn't mean the gifts of the Spirit. It is the person of the Spirit that will come and indwell you. We all know as well this, that there is a number of spiritual gifts. I gave you several passages last week. I'm adding one that somebody pointed out that I had forgotten. There's a passage in Mark chapter 16. Now it's a debated passage. Some of you won't even find it in your Bible or it'll be in light lettering. The last couple verses of the Gospel of Mark, there's a question of whether it was in the original manuscripts. I personally have no problem with it being there. But in the epistles was where I was focusing, but tonight let me expand upon that a little bit. Mark chapter 16 also adds the gift of healing, casting out demons. That's the passage that talks about you can pick up serpents and they won't kill you. Um, and so in that text, if we add that to what we've already pointed out last week, these are all the gifts that are listed in Scripture, that are identified by putting together all five of those passages. If we put them together, there is some overlap, there is, there is, there's a lot of overlap, but there's a, there's a reference to all these gifts. I personally don't think that this is probably the complete list. I think by reference where he says about the gift that stir, the gift that is in you, there could be other gifts of the Spirit that are functioning that we're not aware of <clears throat> or are listed in Scripture, but that is something for the Spirit's to, uh, decision and, and to make known. Number three, what are the spiritual gifts? When we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, we gave you a simple definition, an ability or an opportunity for service. The key words here, are the key word is service, some way of serving the Lord. I'm going to take it a little bit further. This can include a total supernatural enablement to be able to do something that you could not do in and of yourself. I would classify the idea of healings, the idea of speaking in tongues. It is not something that you could do in and of yourselves. It, was, it would be a miraculous stirring, a supernatural stirring of the Holy Spirit uh, to be able to be given revelation. That's got to be a work of God. That's not something you can drum up with pizza. It is the whole idea that there are some of those that are pure, totally divine enablement. Number, there's another possibility of these gifts. They could be taking what ability you have, the uh, ability to give, the ability to teach, the ability to, um, to be hospitable, and then enhancing that and, and magnifying that so that you can do some ministry, some service for the Lord. In the Old Testament, by way of illustration, there was people who were working on the tabernacle. They already had skill sets. They were already 
iron workers. They are already people who could work with, uh, with the different metals. But they were filled with the Spirit. It says that their abilities were heightened so that when they were working on the tabernacle, they could do an even better job. Is that still functioning today? It could very well be possibly uh, working that same way. The other aspect of an ability or opportunity is a position of service. For example, he gave some apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. Those are offices. Pastor, teacher is an office. And it's not giving somebody some, some supernatural ability that nobody can do. That's not the case. It starts with a human ability that God increases a desire in their heart, calls them to that ministry. But what he does is he gives them the ability to fulfill the office. So the position of pastor and teacher is one that is a gift, but it is in individuals fulfilling that role, that responsibility. So taking it together, spiritual gifts can be classified by those that are purely miraculous and those who are, which are non-miraculous. And I think we can back that up with scripture, which we will in a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a passage we're going to look at a couple times. So holding your finger there, jump with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 are, is, a, is a one complete unit. We usually pull chapter 13 out, but it's in the midst of chapters 12. 12 and 14 that are dealing with what about the spiritual gifts. The church of Corinth had a lot of questions about the spiritual gifts. And uh, it's interesting that they are the only church in the New Testament that we know of, or the only epistle where he's talking about the gifts and giving a lot of explanation. <clears throat> and the church of Corinth was having a lot of confusion, a lot of question about it. So he is writing, and he is in this epistle, he is writing to help them to understand the gifts. In the midst of writing about it, he's going to put chapter 13 that we know as the love chapter, and he's going to be stressing in the middle of the discussion about the gifts that more important than some ability or position or supernatural working, more important is your attitude. Your attitude towards God and especially towards others. That if you have, you know, have not loved, man, you've missed it, okay? Because the greatest is love. And he's even going to make that comparison in chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3, that, the, that charity towards others surpasses the uh, ability of the gifts, the sacrifices you may make, even under the point of martyrdom. If you are, have not charity, what good is it? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, at the beginning of this section, he gives us just a few comments that are worthwhile. We read them last week. Let me reread. It says, but the manifestation of the Spirit, and again, we're in this conversation about the gifts of the Spirit, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit the whole group. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these work that one and selfsame Holy Spirit, dividing to every man severally or as he's purposing. And so what we pointed out last week and want to reiterate once again is that this passage teaches us that all the gifts were given out at the Spirit's discretion. They weren't chosen and picked up by an individual. The Spirit gave the opportunity, gave the ability, gave the miraculous enablement to the individuals as he chose to give them out. We pointed out every Christian, every Christian, every man has at least one spiritual gift. 
Some may have more. Some may have several. But everyone, he says, that he's given these gifts to, to every man, he mentions that twice. We also know that they vary from person to person. Not everyone has the same gifts. Not, every, not, not all gifts are possessed by all people. He's making it very clear that there's to this person, to another person, to another person, to another person. Therefore, we would be mistaken to conclude that every believer, and the quote, the story that I just gave you from that great theologian, Terry Bradshaw, um, he's mistaken. He's profoundly mistaken when he says that, the, that, that, you, that every Christian has to speak in tongues or has to have whatever singular gift. The Scriptures does not say that. It implies just the opposite, as we'll see in a few moments. So we have this idea of the gifts, that they are given this way. Here is the important aspect. This is critical. That's why I'm repeating it. Why are the spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit? There are three reasons given in Scripture. The first reason is what we already pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to profit the body. Spiritual gifts are not given for personal elevation, personal exaltation, personal private enjoyment. The idea that if I had the gift of healing, that I could keep it for my family and for my family of lo alone would be obnoxious to the Lord God Almighty. He did not give that gift of charity so that I can be charitable just to my own kids. He gave that gift of giving, that gift of hospitality to benefit the whole body. For me to say, well, I have the gift of teaching, so therefore I'm just going to teach Deb and myself and the rest of you, you know, that's not the way the gifts operate. The gifts were never designed to be a private, for private entertainment or enjoyment. They were designed to benefit the body. There was no privacy factor dealing with the gifts, any of the gifts. They were in a public arena to be done for the benefit of the whole body. Let me take you to a second thought. Hebrews chapter 2, and I've left you blank because I want to give you a little bit of Bible history here. In Hebrews chapter 2, where we talked about last week, I pointed out from this text a critical thought about the gifts. Hebrews chapter 2, jumping down to verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ? It was confirmed unto us by the apostles, them that heard him. Look at verse 4. He says, God bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. What's he saying? He is saying in this passage that the gifts were given to confirm new revelation that was being given. There's a pattern in Scripture that, uh, that if we're not careful, we're going to overlook it. If we were to timeline the entire Bible, if we were to take the Bible and look at it in epics, and the epics wouldn't be, you know, such and such a year to such and such a year. Let's take from 5,000 to 2,000. Let's take the 1,000 to... We're not going by eras that way. We're going by miracle eras. Let's go by history, and let's take our whole Bible, and let's kind of highlight something here. We could take the Bible and we can point out that at different periods of time, there were clusters of miracles that took place. And I'm not saying there was no miracles in between these, these, these clusters, but for the most part, there are periods of time where a lot of miracles happen. Let me give you an illustration of that, okay? Where we have major periods of time where there was many, many miracles, and at the same time, there were also periods of new revelation. Let's go all the way back to Moses. Moses is in a period where there's a lot of miracles that take place. The miracles are taking place, especially when he's dealing with Egypt. He's getting the Jews out of Egypt. You all know that. They get into the wilderness. In the wilderness wanderings, were there lots of miracles taking place? 
such as? Okay, several times different waters. Some waters from the rock. Waters being, being purified. Was there miracles that happened in protecting the people of, of the land? Okay, was there miracles every day in the sense of what fed them? Okay, so there's miracles, clusters of miracles, a lot of miracles. When Moses is at that time period, was Moses giving, was he a vehicle of revelation? Yes or no? Yes. Which parts of the Bible? Well, actually, what did he write? He wrote the first five books, okay? So he's recording some history, but the part that was especially important was the new revelation that was given to them, giving them the demands of God. This is what God wanted from them. We call that section the, okay, the Pentateuch, or we call it in particular the law, okay? That whole period, that whole cluster of commands. So with miracles, like in Moses' case, or in Moses' case, lots of miracles, there was also a whole section of new revelation being given. Not just history of the way God worked, but new communication of new rules, new regulations, uh, new requirements. We go through the Bible for a little bit. The next few books, what do you have after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? What do you got? Joshua, Judges. Okay, we have history books. Now, I'm not saying there were no miracles that took place during those periods. There was a miracle, the fall, the walls of Jericho falling down. But there's not clusters like there was in Moses' ministry. There's not this great amount. The next period of great amount of miracles is happening with surrounding two fellows who were leading the schools of the prophets. Do you know who I mean? Elijah and Elisha. And they were training the prophets. At that time, you have many of the prophets preaching to Israel. And they are preaching messages of revival. They are revealing what's going to happen to Israel, what's going to happen to all the nations. There's a lot of prophets that are preaching at this time, giving prophecy. And at the same time, there being, there's a whole lot of miracles occurring to catch the attention of the people. There's fire that comes down from heaven. There's axes that float. There's armies that are blinded and then taken into the city and captured. And God is revealing time and time again through a cluster of miracles that, hey, listen to these guys, listen to these prophets. We go through a period of time where there's some miracles, but for the most part, now in the deportation, when they're taken out of Israel, the miracles aren't as clustered, okay, as what they were in a period of time. There's a few, there's Daniel that has a few spread over his 75 years, but they're not the same. You got the Jeremiah, they're preaching, they're talking, Zechariah, Haggai, Zerubbabel. They're calling the people to repentance and, and that, but there's not a whole lot of new information. There's not a whole lot of, of, um, of revealing a lot of new truth. A lot of that, they're just building on what's there. And then especially we go through a period that's called the silent years. 400 silent years. There's nothing happening. And then all of a sudden we enter a whole new era of tremendous amount of miracles and they come with who's coming? Jesus Christ. You have Jesus Christ coming on the scenes. Is there clusters of miracles? Oh yeah. Is Jesus giving new revelation? Oh yeah, he's giving a new gospel message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's calling to, in part, it isn't interesting, 
who is the group of people who all this information, this new revelation is targeting? I know it's universal, but in especially what group of people? The Jews, okay? So Jesus is speaking, and he's giving a lot of new revelation that we're going to call the gospel. And the miracles abound. And by the way, to be consistent with this, this biblical theology, is it appropriate for the Jews to ask for signs? Yes, it was. It was predicted in Deuteronomy 18. This is how you're going to know if it's a prophet from God, and especially the prophet. So by asking for signs, that is not inappropriate. It was very appropriate. The problem wasn't that they asked for signs. It's that they asked for signs after he'd given them signs. Right on the heels of Jesus, who comes? Clusters of miracles. The apostles. Okay, you have the book of Acts and you have the apostles. And there's a lot of miracles that take place, especially in the first part of the book. Well, if we look and say, okay, what about Revelation? What is being written primarily in the first part of the book of Acts? Okay, we have the epistles, okay, that they are being given. So we have this new revelation being given. And by the way, is this new revelation somewhat different than what they've been told about before? The answer is absolutely, positively yes. What are they introducing for the first time to history? Church, okay? What are they introducing? All different types of things like communion, church, different type of baptism, different working of the Holy Spirit. It's all under this new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated. Then you have, towards the very end of the book of Acts, you have a decline in a lot of these miracles. There's not as many. There's, okay, the snake doesn't, doesn't kill him, and he raises up Publius. But outside of that, there's not many miracles. In fact, when in the latter part of writing the epistles, does Paul have a weakness? That's the wrong word to use, but it gives you an idea. Is Paul wanting to do healing but not able to heal in the epistles? Philippians chapter 2 that we just preached on. Who is his friend that's dying, and Paul couldn't do anything for him? Epaphroditus remember? That he was so sick under death and Paul couldn't heal him. Why is that? Why is that? Because there is talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to go there in a few minutes, chapters, uh, chapter 13, 8 and 10, it predicts that there's going to come a period of time that a lot of these supernatural gifts, they will subside. When do they subside? When do they run out? Okay, there's, a time, there's an answer to that in those verses that we'll see in a minute. But let me just jump. Then there's, and I'm not saying there aren't miracles happening today, that God is doing miraculous working, and we're not saying that same, but in the sense of these biblical miracles that were so profound in changing nature and raising the dead, things like that, there is another period of time where there is a tremendous amount of miracles to take place. When is the next epic of, of miracles? It's going to be in the end times, during the tribulation period. Who in pri pri primarily are going to be the miracle workers? Do you remember? There's two prophets, okay? And, uh, and there's others who are going to be miraculously protected because they have the what of God? The seal of God upon their forehead. The, the, what groups? The 144,000, okay? What are they doing during that time? Are they introducing new revelation direct from God? The answer is absolutely. They are being given dreams, visions, prophecy. In fact, at that time period, these people will also have angels. We talked about when we did the study, angels are going to be giving out messages around the world. And so you have in, in a, Bible, a, a Bible's you know, panoramic you have a consistent idea that with miracles 
uh, with uh, miracles, there's new revelation. With new revelation, there's miracles. So that brings us back to the idea that, okay, are supernatural signs given for a purpose? According to Hebrews chapter 2, they were. One of their purposes is to catch people's attention when there's new revelation. If there is no new revelation taking place, there is no need for some of these miraculous gifts. Does that make sense? Because they were designed. Some were specifically designed to get attention to listen to new revelation. So if there's no re new revelation, there's no need for some of these gifts. If we claim these gifts are going on, then we must also be claiming that there is what? New revelation occurring at this moment. Something beyond the scriptures. So we're right back to this whole idea of saying, wait a minute. Is God speaking directly to people with new revelation outside of Scripture at this point? It's a, it's a major theological question. Is the Bible complete enough for us? Is it what God has intended for us today? Or are we missing out on something? And that's the key. Okay? That gets us to this. This is the, the, the issue. If a lot of these miraculous gifts are taking place, then that means there's new revelation taking place. If we don't get involved with those miraculous gifts, we're missing out on new revelation. Something is awry then on our part. Okay? And so we've got to be very, very, very um, accurate in interpreting Scripture. Is there new revelation taking place during this time period? Is God speaking to people, giving dreams and visions and other types of revelation, which, by the way, tongues was one of those types of revelation. It was a, it was a form of God communicating some type of, uh, some portions of new revelation. And so it's really critical that we get this thing on, that we get this all answered right. And so let's continue on, okay? There's a third reason for the gifts, and that is stated in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 14. You need to mark this. If you've not marked this, this is a critical verse in understanding some of these spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he is going to make this statement in verse 21. In the law it is written. This is what the Old Testament predicted is what he's going to say. He's going to say, in the law it was written, and he goes on, he says, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. I got a question for you. Okay, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, 21, who is he referring to in the law when he says this people? The Jews. He's referring to the Jews. Watch the next verse. Wherefore, and he, this is Paul's conclusion based on the passage of Isaiah. Wherefore, tongues are for a what? They're a sign. Not to who? Not to believers. This is what God is saying. Tongues are not a sign for the believers, but they're a sign to who? To the unbelievers, those that have not believed. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. And so his point is, and we're, we're and I'm in particular right now saying the gift of tongues, the gift of tongues is not for us believers to enjoy in and of ourselves in this type of a setting. It is supposed to be given when it is given, when there are who, pre, who is present. Unbelieving, there's more to this, unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Jews. That's what he says. I can't get away from that. Can't get around it. He is saying it is a sign for the unbelieving Jews. So we've got three primary purposes for the gifts. 
okay, uh, the miraculous gifts. And in particular, he's given us one very clear purpose for the gift of tongues. He's identified it and it alone as being the one sign for the unbelieving Jews. Are these gifts of the Spirit still functional today? Well, some obviously are not functional. I'll give you a reason why. According to Acts chapter 1, he says in Acts chapter 1 when they are trying to replace the apostles, he makes this comment in Acts chapter 1 by noting that he says we have to choose somebody who has been around since Jesus Christ has been here. And he's going to give that, that definition in Acts chapter 1 for the, uh, for the bishopric or the, or the eldership or the pastorate, if you would, uh, the leadership of the one to take um, Judas's place, where he says, beginning from the baptism of John unto this same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Somebody who was around during the life of Jesus Christ. That's a qualification for an apostle. So these guys who, um, who I was just speaking to, I forget who it is off the top of my head. Oh, I, I remember the situation. Um, this pastor was just telling me this week when we were sitting down, he was seeking some advice on something. And he was saying, in my neighborhood, there are two apostles who live just down the block. Both of these apostles claim to have all, all the gifts of the apostleship that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says in, um, uh, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that these apostles, they claim that they have been given the gift of apostleship. They, you know, he has given, the Spirit has given apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, Ephesians 4.11. And he says they claim that. Well, according to Acts chapter 1, if you're, if you're qualified to be an apostle, you have to be around when Jesus was here on earth. Those guys are pretty old. Okay, they have to be pretty old. That was the requirement given in this text. So that means nobody's, nobody can fulfill that requirement anymore. That, what does that tell you about that gift? The gift of the apostles are what was or is, it's gone. It's not there. It's not happening anymore. Does that diminish God at all? No, no. To say, well, you're implying that God can't do miracles. Do not put those words in my mouth. Our God has never said that, and we've never said that he can't do it. However, can God establish his own, his own priorities for working? Can he lim choose to limit himself? The answer is yes. Okay? And so we go a little bit further. They are no longer needed. Hebrews chapter 2. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, well, here's what he's doing. He is talking about the, in this love chapter, he is giving information. He says, love believes all things, loves bears all things, loves rejoicing not in iniquity. Now look at your verse 8. Charity or love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, okay, what's going to happen? Okay, it says they shall fail. And we're not talking fail as in not successful. That's not the word for fail here. The word for, for fail here is the idea they shall run out. They're going to lose gas. They're going to lose power. They're not going to be functional is the idea. It's not that they don't succeed. It's not that they fall flat on their face. It's the idea that they stop. They're not going to be operating anymore. Whether they be tongues, what does your Bible say? They shall cease. The word used here is very strong for they shall stop. And by the way, it's, it's the middle voice here. They shall stop of themselves. Very clear. 
There's going to be an ending to the tongues at one time. Whether there be knowledge, it's going to do the same thing. It's the same word for fail as we had with the idea of the prophesying earlier in the verse. Now watch what happens here. He says, now he's talking, the context, he's talking gifts. He's talking spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts which were used to do what? They were used to confirm as well as convey new revelation. Do you, do you grant that to me? That tongues, for instance, somebody speaking in tongues could be communicating new revelation. Like in the book of Acts, they get up and the 12 men start preaching. And what does he say in Acts chapter 2? They say, we hear men speaking in our own dialect, okay, language, okay? In the original, our own dialects, we hear them preaching this new truth, okay? So you have prophesyings. Were prophesying's means of God communicating what would happen? The answer is yes. Okay, so you have prophesying's happening. You, I, I can't define knowledge. Okay, other than in this context, it must be some type of revealed truth in some way, revelation being given. Okay, but tongues, prophesying, very clearly, these are means of conveying revelation that God is imparting. Now watch how that fits so clearly with just, just that common sense interpretation. For we know in, what do you got? We know in part and we what? Okay, can I give you the, the deep, deep Greek meaning? We know in tidbits. We know in small portions. We also prophesy in small portions. Well, that makes sense, does it not? Does, does God unload the whole book of Leviticus when somebody would stand up in church and speak a few moments in tongues? I don't think so. Leviticus would take a long time to unload. Yes? Okay. Let's say even a computer, would it take more time to download Leviticus than it would Jesus wept? Okay. Okay. So the idea is we, we get this knowledge from God in small portions, in tidbits. That makes sense, does it not? We can get up, and if somebody were speaking legitimately in tongues, um, I could stand up, I could give you something, you would stand up and give the interpretation, and you're getting a tidbit, an important tidbit, okay? But a tidbit from God compared to, it's a tidbit compared to full revelation. Now watch as he continues with that thought. He says, for we prophesy in part, and he said, no in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is, what does the word perfect mean? Finished is a good word. Anybody have another word there? Complete. When that which is in its entirety is come, then that which is in, what does your Bible read? In part shall be what? Okay, now here's the interesting words that he used. When that which is complete is come, then the tidbits are gone. Okay, keep the, keep the context. Follow the context. We're talking tidbits of revelation. What is the complete revelation? The Bible. When the Bible is completed. Oh, I understand. I understand. Some of you are thinking right away, well, wait a minute. That which is perfect could refer to Jesus Christ. It's interesting. It's a neuter, ver it's a neuter word that's here. Typically, Jesus is not described with, a, with an it idea. He's described with masculine. And in context, where in this context are we talking about the return of Jesus Christ? 
It's not in this text. But in this text, we're talking context, revelation. God giving revelation. Tidbits of revelation versus a complete revelation. So if you follow it through and keep on going with that simple, consistent interpretation, when that which is complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. In other words, when I get the completed scriptures, what will happen to these tidbits of revelation? They're not needed. They're not needed anymore. Because then when we have the entirety of the Word of God, we don't need tidbits. Oh, and by the way, let me remind you that according to the book of Revelation, when the Scriptures is complete, he warns that if you add to the Scriptures, what happens? There's the plagues to you. Or if you take away, there's judgment as well. What, is, what does he say in the book of, of Jude? He talks about we have the faith that was once for all delivered to us in its entirety. So at the last end of Bi uh, the period of Bible, Bible um, revelation being given, they were warning about adding to scriptures and adding more of these tidbits. Oh, oh wait now. Is it exciting to say God is speaking to me directly? Would, would that be... Would that be kind of cool? Seriously, seriously, would it, be, would it be neat to have God talk directly to you? I would love you. I would like it. I would like him to give answers to what we're supposed to do here, 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 okay? But, okay, to say, wait a minute, you just say that, you know, God is still doing that. Well, he warned us that there's going to be an end to these different forms of new revelatory messages, these tidbits, and it would come with the completion of Scripture. Now go back to that chart that I was talking about. It's really interesting if you follow through the book of Acts and if you follow through the New Testament as the... Here you got miracles, lots of miracles in the, in the early, early Acts. Very little revelation recorded, okay? As more and more revelation is being recorded, what's happening to the miracles? They're going down. Why is that? They don't need them. They're not needed. That's the God's purpose for those gifts was to say, okay, here's new revelation. But once the new revelation is there and in its entirety, then what, do we have to prove the Bible with a miracle? No. Faith cometh by hearing. We come to a point where we say, we accept this by faith. Oh, by the way, if somebody says, well, I can't accept it by faith, I need to have a sign. That's exactly what the Jewish people did. And what sign satisfied them? There was none. They had to keep on getting more and more signs when, the, when God himself was standing in front of them, proved it. And if we focus so much on the sensational, are we ever satisfied? No. It's like Lay's potato chips. You can't eat just one. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm relying on the pizzazz of something dynamic and dramatic and woo, okay, how much do I need to keep me going? I need more. I need more. It's like uh, how, much, how much medication do you need to dull the pain after you've been on oxycodone for a while? Okay, you need more. You need more. So the danger of what this is, the danger is saying, now wait a minute, um, do I have complete scripture that gives me all I need or do I need something more, something more, something more? I believe we have all we need from God. I believe 
that the focus shouldn't be on more dynamic and dramatic things. It should be on walking by the yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. That's called the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We need to be doing that. So we know that these thoughts are going along. I'm going to take you a step further here. Okay, the predictions we already mentioned, that's that it was predicted. Some of these gifts, it's stated they're going to stop. They're going to stop before the end of time. They were, they were going to cease. And so we've, we've got clear statements of Scripture that saying some of these gifts are, are not permanent, they're not going on. It seems to me that what we can do is classify the gifts in two categories. The miraculous gifts that were usually associated with new revelation, and then you have some things that are non-miraculous. Um, I'm a non-miraculous gift, and I don't mean that in a pompous way, but the position that I hold is non-miraculous. It is not supernatural. Say amen, amen, amen. That's a clear, obvious thing. Now, can God take what abilities you or I have in some church office and heighten those? Yeah, yeah. But it's not the same as the miraculous gifts, okay? If somebody had the gift of healing, if it was still functional, for crying out loud, where should we send those people? Get, get them over to Hershey Medical Center, okay? Do the job. Do the job, okay? Why isn't that the case? Well, because those gifts have faded out because their purpose and uh, their design. And, 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 and by the way, it all comes down to this. The... Uh, you know, and, and this, is, this is a critical, keep this in mind. The gifts are not the ends of, of the story. To have a gift, to experience a gift, that was not the end of it. That was just a means to get somebody to the end. The end, the real benefit was the revelation. But is there a tendency to get caught up with the miracle and to forget the revelation? Well, that's exactly what the Jews did. They weren't listening what did they want? Bring our neighbors, bring our friends, get more miracles, but they never listened to the message. That was the problem, is that they didn't hear Jesus, so what did he end up doing? He stopped the miracles. Because the miracles were not were, what wasn't the, the goal that he had for him, it was listening to him. And so it's very important we keep this whole theology. Also notice this. This is an interesting thought. I'm going to, you're absolutely right. The three or four you said, I won't get through the notes. Um, you were prophets, okay? <laughs> you predicted. Not all the gifts continued the same way through the, the New Testament, okay? The, they didn't do that. Do, um, here, this, this bothers me when people do this. When people jump and they make these statements. Well, they did this in the book of Acts, this is what happened in the book of Acts, so surely then it's still today because Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay, so if it happened in the book of Acts, then it should be functioning this and happening the same way. That's just not Bible truth. In the book of Acts, you have at the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, read it, in Acts chapter 2, you have the situation. Let me see if I can get you there. This is it. Okay, I have my notes where I think I am. In Acts chapter 2, the men get the filling of the Holy Spirit. They get the filling of the Holy Spirit, and it talks about the 12 of them, uh, Peter with the other 11, it says. They get the Spirit, they go out, and what do they do in the streets of Jerusalem? Acts 2, Pentecost. What do they do in the streets of Jerusalem? Hello? Oh, they preach. When they're done preaching, what's the response? They give an invitation, and what happens? How many? 3,000 get saved. Okay, now when you think this through, read this through, we'll pick it up next week and talk a little bit more about it. In Acts 2, who is speaking 
in this, at that time it's tongues. Who's speaking with that miraculous gift? All 12, okay? They're all 12 speaking in the same, quote-unquote, impromptu street meeting, same service. They're all speaking. It seems to be that they're speaking at the same time. And Peter gets up and he says, oh, men of Jerusalem, da-da-da-da-da-da, because he's catching the attention, because what are the people in the crowd saying? These guys are, they're drunk. They're drunk, okay? They're speaking with boldness, they're doing this. And so Peter gets up and he explains then what's going on. And by the way, they, they make comment here that they hear them in their own tongues, that they're understanding what they're saying in their Cretan tongue. They understand what they're saying in their Idumean tongue. They understand what they're saying in their Persian tongue. And so they're understanding the language that's being spoken. So that means that the people uh, who are here, they didn't need the interpreters because they were speaking in their languages. So they didn't need an interpreter. Now you go, take your Bibles. Let's finish it off this way. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, let's advance several decades. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's talking about this, in particular, tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, you look down in verse 27, okay? Is he saying tongues in 1 Corinthians, are, in the church of Corinth, are supposed to happen exactly as they did at Pentecost? No, absolutely not. What does he tell them in 1 Corinthians 14? What, what is the requirements for the tongues? Okay, what does he say? Two or three at the most. That's different than what happened at Pentecost. What other difference do you see? Each in their own turn, it's one, one at a time by course. What else is different? You must have an interpreter. In other words, no impromptu speaking in tongues. Okay, he's going to say, before, before, he can get up. Didn't mean to shock you. Okay, <laughs> before he can get up and speak in tongues, we have to make sure there's an interpreter. So this idea that he can impromptu get up and speak isn't in, in the Bible. It's not there. It's required that what, I, what would I have to do before Brian would speak in tongues? I got to find out who's here to interpret. We got to check this out before the service takes place. So this idea that all of a sudden, whoo, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do my thing and flop all over. That's not Bible. There's one other requirement here. No woman. In context, you have down in the, further in the passage where he says in verse 34, in this context, let, not the, let the, you know, the woman keep silence in the church. The idea is not be publicly teaching in context that's speaking in tongues. And so he's given restrictions that are different than what happened in the first time that tongues showed up. So for you and I to say, well, listen, it happened back there, and Jesus Christ the same yesterday. Is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, forever? He is. But does he, as time goes by, can he introduce different rules and restrictions for some ministries? Absolutely. By the way, they didn't have deacons at the very beginning. They weren't there. They were only introduced further into the book of Acts. 
As time goes by, certain things were changed. They were adjusted. And that's normal. That's natural. There's nothing wrong with that. So what we need to discuss is we need to get into more in depth is what about these tongues? We've alluded to them, but we're trying to take the bigger picture. But there's several things about tongues that are so critical. In 1 Corinthians 14, you're going to say, hey, pastor, it says that they shouldn't forbid to speak in tongues. It talks about Paul saying, you know, about praying in tongues. How come Paul is saying he's praying in tongues when you said it can't be private? But he says he's praying in tongues. I want to explain those verses. There's a very clear and consistent explanation, interpretation for all that if we're going to just really, really study and study and hold to what the Bible says. But we got to hold to what the Bible says. We got to keep to what the Bible says. Okay, and so that means you and I have got to be good students of the Word. We need to take advantage of the time to understand, but more importantly, let's not get so focused on these experiences and forget what the Bible tells us. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You must be filled with the Spirit. That means I must yield to the Spirit on a daily basis. If I do not yield to the Spirit... I won't understand his word. If I don't yield to the Spirit, I'm not going to live a love life, which is a more excellent way. If I don't yield to the Spirit, I can't fulfill even my responsibilities in that gifted area. I won't be able to do it. You won't be able to do and fulfill your gift if we aren't yielded to the Spirit of God. Are you yielded? The way you responded to trials this week, the way you responded to coworkers, the way that you responded to your kids, are you Spirit-filled? Are you forgiving? Are you giving out the word? Are you doing your very best? Are you spirit-filled?